I'm going to go ahead and read for us our Bible story today. Um, might be one you're familiar with about the two brothers, Cain and Abel, in Genesis chapter 4. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit of the ground, and Abel for his part brought of the firstlings of his flock their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Like I mentioned earlier, today we have a uh, special guest preacher that I'm going to introduce to you. His name is Elijah Zayu. Um, all his accolades I will mention. He is a graduate of Morehouse College, University of Chicago Divinity School, where we met. Um, he is currently a PhD candidate in African Diaspora History at Howard University, and lastly, Associate Minister at Calvary Baptist Church in DC. Um, he's also a great guy uh, and a fun dude. So Elijah, if you can unmute and join us, welcome. Uh, thank you, Tim, for the introduction and thank you for the welcome uh, to be able to join with you all here at Root and Branch on this Sunday morning. Um, uh, you know, Tim didn't say this in the introduction, but me and Tim are very good friends. Um, I've known him uh, since uh, uh, I was I was I was fairly young, fresh out of college and in divinity school. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, I was around for some of the founding of Root and Branch. Um, and so it's always been one of my dreams to preach at Root and Branch. So I'm so excited to be here. Now, I was hoping that I would actually like be flown out to Chicago, maybe spend a weekend out in the city. But I guess Zoom and virtual church will do uh, too. Um, but in all seriousness, it's good to be with you all today to be a part of the space that has been curated um, the space that is always being curated by your imaginative uh, and courageous uh, pastors. Just honestly, um, one of the reasons that I am a pastor right now is because of Tim. Tim actually took the time to make the case to me um, for why the work that we do in this world is needed um, and important. Um, and so I'm grateful for him always, especially at times uh, like this. Um, where we all know it's a difficult time. It's been a difficult week. And, uh, and so, like Tim said, um, we're happy to be in the house of God today. We're happy to get to connect with people virtually, to get to fellowship, to be community, to be a part um, of one another. Um, so ask him to read the scripture for us today uh, from Genesis, Genesis chapter four. And I'll just read a portion of it again for your hearing. Um, and it goes... Uh, like, goes like this. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? 
He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, listen, your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Lord says, what have you done? Your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I want to preach this morning for a few minutes on the subject, the cry of black blood. Now, this title that I'm using is borrowed from the late, great, the Reverend Dr. James Hall Cone, who offered many lectures on this subject, the cry of black blood. If you don't know who James Cone is, James Cone is the father of a field called Black Liberation Theology. And his story is that back in the late 1960s, in the summer of 1967, and in the summer of 1968, when Detroit was going through riots and then other American cities rioted after the assassination of Dr. King, James Cone said that as cities were burning, he wanted to do his part, right, to be a part of the Black liberation struggle. Now, James Cone was a trained systematic theologian. He went to Northwestern University in Chicago where he earned his PhD and taught, was taught all of the European greats, sort of like how we were taught at the University of Chicago. But for some reason, during that time, those people that he had been studying, those the theologians, those conversations that they were having about God simply weren't speaking to him enough. So he went into his brother's basement in Arkansas, the basement of his brother's church. And he said for three months, as the cities around him rioted, he wrote and he wanted to write something that would have something to say about the cry of black blood in streets. And so what developed out of that was black power and black theology. And in this book, Black Power and Black Theology in particular, what James Cone does is that he gives theological language to the Black Power movement. And at that time of the Black Power movement, it was such a big deal because people thought that Black Power was a hated statement, a statement of hatred. So it's like, how could you claim Black Power? And what James Cone went in and did and said was actually that Black Power was a statement that Jesus would agree with. He gave theological language to the Black Power movement. He said that the young activists on the streets burning down cities and tearing down walls and throwing cars over, they were actually people acting in the image and likeness of God. And so it was out of that crisis moment of 1967 and 1968 that a Black theology of liberation emerged, a theology that emphasized that God was a God of the oppressed and the way that you knew God was a God of the oppressed was by looking at the particular social location of where you were, that God spoke through particular people, James Cone argued, that the people in the Bible should best be understood through their particular lens, their particular role as oppressed people. And what he said then is that if we want to understand who is God today or where God is today, that we must look at oppressed people in the United States of America. And at that time, the argument that he made was that oppressed people in the United States of America were black 
people. They're the people out there struggling in the streets for a better world, a more just world. And he provoked them and his words are still with us today. Do you hear the cry of black blood flowing through the streets of the United States of America? He asked that question in 1967 and we asked that question today. Most of y'all are in Chicago. Do you hear the cry of black blood in Chicago? You see the videotape of Laquan McDonald from a couple years ago. You drive around the city and see how the north side is treated much differently from the west side and the south side with the exception of Hyde Park. Do you see how the University of Chicago police has a large police force? Do you see how they rolled up the bridges this past week so the folks couldn't get into the mag mile? Do you see how the prisons are full of black people, of brown people, of black men and black women policed? Do you see the projects? Do you see the hood? Do you see the black blood that's crying from the streets of the United States of America? Did you see the video of Ahmaud Arbery being murdered on camera? Are you hearing more information about that story? Are you seeing the video? Are you hearing the story of Breonna Taylor's death? Of how she was sleeping in her room after working a shift as an EMT worker during this pandemic and yet cops came and killed her and they still have not been arrested yet. Do you know the story of George Floyd? A man maybe who cashed a black, a bad check whose neck, whose knee, who the police had their knee on his neck. Do you hear the cry of black blood all over this country? Have you heard it historically? Do you read it in the 1619 project with the emergence of enslavement and beginning in 1619 telling the true story of Jamestown? Do you hear the cry of black blood through American history, even during the American Revolution? In the Declaration of Independence, where an enslaved person carried the desk that Thomas Jefferson penned the words of the Declaration of Independence from? Do you hear the cry of black blood flowing through the centuries of Nat Turner's blood, of Denmark Vesey's blood, of Gabriel Prosser's blood? Do you hear the black blood flowing through the centuries? Do you hear the cry of black blood, the black blood that was shed during the Civil War, the black blood that was shed during the nadir of American history, during the periods of terror and lynching of when governments run by black people were overthrown and sabotaged by a mad white rage. Do you hear the black blood flowing through the centuries? Do you hear the cry of black blood? The cry of black blood that Billie Holiday sang about strange fruit. Do you hear the cry of black blood that Ida B. Wells Barnett spoke about? Do you hear the cry of black blood that James Baldwin wrote about, that Toni Morrison sang about? Black blood has been crying out to us our entire history in this country. And that's just a fact. 
There's overwhelming evidence that black blood has been crying out for us, asking us this question. Are you my brother's keeper? And too often, too many in this country have responded, I don't know. In fact, some of them have responded even worse and said, no, I have no idea at all. I'm not my brother's keeper. I'm not my sister's keeper. I'm not my sibling's keeper. And in this text in Genesis reminds us that God still presses us, that the morality of our world still presses us, that all those people who have a conscience need to be pressed and said, wait a second, do you hear the cry of black blood coming to me from the ground? You see, one biblical scholar, Miguel de la Torre, says of this part of the book of Genesis that, that actually the whole Bible can be read as seeking to answer this question. Am I my brother's keeper? That when it's posed here in the beginning of the story, that the rest of the Bible is trying to make sense of this question and to say, yes, you are your brother, your sisters, your siblings keeper. Yes, we're supposed to keep and be responsible for one another. So part of the question is, how do we be responsible for one another right now? How do non-black people hear the cry of black blood coming from the ground? How do you let God know that this is our responsibility? That the death, the murders, the horror, the terror, the racism that we all experience, the violence, the transphobia, the sexism, the misogynoir, all of that is part of our collective responsibility. How do you hear the cry of black blood? See, I believe that when we take this scripture passage seriously and then when we take our commitment to be moral beings seriously, I believe that we see the answer. The answer is that the way to hear the cry of black blood, the way to hear the cries coming from the grounds of the oppressed, the way to remind each other that we are supposed to care for one another to create space, to create community, to say things collectively like, we believe Black Lives Matter unconditionally, all of them, and to commit ourselves to the hard moral work of doing that. Are you committed to that work? That work is hard. It might cause you to challenge some people that you've never challenged before. It might cause you to call out your family for what they say and do. It might even push you to do some work inside yourself to realize you might still be carrying some of that with you. But all of it is worth it because we are brothers and sisters, we're family. You know, James Cohen in his last book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, ends it this way. He says, you know, some whites lynched blacks, even though they knew that they were brothers and sisters. I would add siblings. Whites and blacks and everyone in this country are in one family. And then James Cohen, his language says, whites may be bad brothers and sisters, but they are brothers 
and sisters nonetheless. And part of our task is to figure out how to actually be family together. Well, a day like today is a day where we ask difficult questions about what it means to be family together. And one way to start, to start by hearing the cry of black blood is coming from all over the grounds of this country and the whole world. I pray that you hear it. I pray that you pay attention to it. I pray that you are moved to action by it. Thank you and amen. Amen, Elijah. Amen, everybody. I thank you so much for a really powerful message, one that's super honest and um, extremely necessary for all of us to hear right now. We have some time that um, I wanted to have a little bit of a conversation with Elijah and bring you guys into a little bit of dialogue and ask some questions here. Um, the first thing I want to ask you, Elijah, is in this framework of Black liberation theology that came from Cone, and it's really vital for us to think through that lens of um, what does it mean for you? What does Black liberation mean, do you think, for also non-Black people? How should non-Black people relate to the concept of Black liberation theology? Yeah, uh, so I, I appreciate the question. And again, I appreciate what y'all are up to here at uh, Root and Branch. I know that y'all are theologically courageous, right? And to me, that's the best part um, about um, Black liberation theology as well. Because a part of what James Cone was saying and what he was challenging was the idea that you could have a sort of a universal understanding of God. He was making the case that God had to be understood through particular stories, particular narratives, and particular relationships. And that particularity could then um, maybe project something universal about God, could show us a trait about God that is translatable across um, uh, different uh, particulars. Um, but so, so the way I think about this question in regards to non-Black people is that one, Black liberation theology is just good theology, right? That it helps us localize and contextualize God. God isn't sort of out elsewhere and out there. God is in our story. God cares about our particular situation. God knows who I am and what I'm going through. And God accepts me, God affirms me, God encourages me. And this is what the black liberation tradition has done is when the world around it outside has said, you aren't good enough, you don't fit into this paradigm. They remind themselves, they encourage themselves at a time like this, right? That God made them and that God loves them. And part of what then I think that has for those of us who sit outside of this tradition is a reminder that we're all family and connected. Right. So Dr. Will Gaffney, who is a womanist scholar influenced by black liberation theology, but then black women came and developed on top of that and said that black women were left out of black liberation theology. So Will Gaffney, Dr. Will Gaffney is a part of that. She says that her book and maybe it's a book you all should study. Um, womanist Midrash. Uh, we're doing it in my church is a is a biblical interpretation of the women in the Hebrew Bible. And what she says is that is that womanism and black theology is like eating from her mother's table, right? That, that, that they're setting the table for everyone to be able to taste 
and enjoy it, but it's cooked with our particular flavor, but it's life-giving to every person that comes there and it eats from the table. And and while we can make minor arrangements, right, um, for people based off of their dietary needs, you know, what she says is that the Black woman's table is inherently an intersectional table, right? So it's about her race, her gender, her sexuality, that because she's connected to the community, it includes a bunch of people outside of the community. And so I think that in the same way, the Black theology at its most progressive edges is a theology that the whole world can get behind because it's making a statement about a God of the oppressed and it's inviting all of us to be on side of the oppressed wherever they are. Yeah, we um, we actually did a reading group around that book last year, Luminous Midrash. I love it. And uh, if anybody out there wasn't part of that group and is interested in that book, you can uh, message me or actually Liz Bashima who helped lead that group as well. And we can share that book with you. Um, I wanted to ask you about basically this feeling of despair that I think can come up a lot during this time. I've certainly felt it this week. Just thinking through, yeah, like as you mentioned in your sermon, um, we've seen black people murdered on the streets like this for decades. And most recently here a couple years ago with Laquan McDonald and that stirred up a lot of protests and things like that as well. Um, but it seems like a cycle that repeats that doesn't truly change over time. And so sometimes I look at that and feel a lot of despair, particularly just the racism in this country throughout our history. and. In these moments, you know, I'm looking for something to offer some hope. I thought about um, Dr. King's quote, which is etched into his memorial in DC, part of the, his I Gave a Dream speech, which is from a mountain of despair, a stone of hope, um, a quote I know that you really love too. What, what is hope for you in a time like this? What is hope for you when we look at uh, a cycle of violence and racism that seems to never truly change? Hmm. Yeah, it's a that's a great question. And the question of hope um, often comes up. You know, one of the things that I ended up doing after I left divinity school um, was that I, I, I went to study black history. And that's what I'm doing right now, in addition to pastoring the church that I that I help serve at. Um, I study black history. And for me, the hope is in the history, right? It's in the story, it's in the testimony. And what and what I mean by that is that is that, you know, so much of the of what we're of what we're reading, especially the scholarship in black history right now, is about resistance, right? It's about all of those big and small ways that people who had all the odds against them were able to keep pushing. Some people did it in some minor way. So they broke plates of the people that they serve or some people charred up glass bit by bit by bit right and sometimes fed it to their slaveholders until they died some people escaped right and were able to experience freedom in the american north or in canada or left even the country some people fought in the civil war and over got their freedom violently some people were able to be elected and hold offices and while those things are never complete um, and haven't been sustainable. I think what's important, and Ta-Nehisi Coates says this, that the hope in many ways is in the ability to struggle for your freedom, 
right? That you don't know that tomorrow is promised, but at least in this shared tradition that I think that we are a part of, that struggling and fighting is worth it in and of itself, right? And that's a counter narrative, right, to the capitalist structure that we're in that says that, well, what's the outcome? What's the productivity? What's the win? And sometimes we have to pull back and say, well, the win is the is finding within myself the ability to struggle, finding within myself the ability just to fight. And what we see is that when people fight, they win in some way, right? Sometimes the win is a, is a win of the soul, that your spirit itself isn't crushed. This is why Dr. King ends up being such a powerful figure. It's like, wait a second, you die a martyr at 39 years old. You write the letter from a Birmingham jail on, during Easter weekend. That's where you are. Martin's in jail, Easter weekend, writing a letter. How are you hoping? Well, because my spirit's not crushed. And then that's the deeper question that we have to ask in America. Wait a second. How are these people's spirits not crushed with all that they went through? And so maybe that's the part that we have to tap into is an ability to struggle, an ability to fight and to not let our spirits be crushed as we fight. And I think that like the song you all played, there's so many resources that keep our spirit going. God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, God who brought us here, right? Um, we've come this far by faith, leaning on the everlasting love. And then the Christian religious tradition ends up being a big part of that. And just to say another thing, I know you didn't ask me about, that's a part where people often, you know, get confused, right? They want to say, oh, black folk are, you know, more religious and their religiosity in some way um, is indicative of, of, I don't know, something, something, something sub. And what I want to say is that the religiosity is a part of what helps them deal and grapple with the conditions of this world, help them imagine something beyond and pushes them to often have the will and the struggle to fight. This is what Gaylord Wilmore is talking about in Black religion and Black radicalism, that it's, that it's this spirituality, this depth, this resourcing of the spirituals and the blues that pushes them beyond this world that says that even though the governor, the president, the police, you know, they have the position. God ultimately has the power. Um, if I could ask one more question in just a couple of minutes we have left together. Um, you know, even in a moment like this where people are, are being really awakened to what's happening, I think often um, people still see the demands that are being made as often like extreme or radical, you know, uh, something like defunding the police, which is, um, a cause that's being taken up right now. A lot of people I know will hear that and be like, wow, that is way too radical or an extreme, right? And how do you think about that kind of rhetoric around things being extreme or um, or just impossible? How do you think about the way that people want to hold back progress by using that kind of language? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that we are in a tradition, right? The tradition that we often use as as our source, at least as one of our sources, this uh, Christian religious tradition that pushes us to imagine a new type of world, right? Revelation talks about a world where there's no more weeping, there's no more crying, there's no more mourning, there's no more death. It's talking about a radical reordering of society. It's supposed to be a new heaven and earth, a new Jerusalem, right? In that this world can be transformed. And so I think that our 
commitment, right, um, as being a part of this moral tradition, right, has to be able to push us to the edges. Why should it push us to the edges? One, because part of what we're saying is that the way things currently are don't really work for us. So if people are imagining a world where police are no longer terrorizing us, then we need to sit with that and imagine that for a little bit. Yes, it's a public policy question. Yes, it's an organizing question. Yes, there's some strategy that still needs to happen. But part of what we don't even do long enough is to sit with our moral imagination. And these types of people push us to sit with moral imagination. It's hard in a white supremacist capitalist empire to actually think, to actually sit with moral imagination. And so these statements have power in as much as they, as they make us pause for a second. Say, wait a second, what would the world actually look like? I don't want to hear about all the reasons why. If the police are doing this harm, do they need to be there? We're, we got enough smart people. We'll figure out how to make it work. And the, and the last thing I'll say about that is the reason people are pitching these extreme, so-called extreme ideas is because of the extreme violence. The violence is extreme. This has been the point the whole time. 12% of your population should not be the overwhelming majority of the people in your jails. That's extreme. Enslavement, segregation, lynching, police brutality, violence and housing, education, everything. Those things are extreme. And to make up for the extreme violence, there needs to be a radical reordering for good, for justice, for progress. And that's what I think those things are. Amen, man. Um, I want to thank you so much for doing this work of expanding our moral imaginations as well. Um, and also for the, all the work that you're doing um, in your community, uh, in your studies as well to, to advance this cause. You um, are an inspiration to me, for sure, personally. and also. Um, Again, just thank you so much for spending time with our community today and this morning and offering a message that we really needed to hear. Thank you. I appreciate it.